Hey everybody and welcome to episode 2 of the Health Excel podcast. I'm Chandana from Health Excel. I'm Martin from Health Excel. Joining us today will be Robert Garber from 7Wire Ventures. Robert, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So let's kick off. Tell us a little bit about yourself and you know where it all started. Uh, well, I'm an East Coaster by by uh, by background, so Chicago is a transplant city for me. And okay. uh, although now I've been there for twenty some odd years and brave the winters, brave the winters, and um, and ask the annual question of why do we live there? <laughs> <laughs> Which right? anybody who's spent enough time there has that. It's sort of a rhetorical question that's necessary when you move there. Right. Um, but uh, I have been an investor in healthcare and technology for the last twenty two years now. Wow. Uh, and before that, spent 10 years on the operating side, sort of learning what it was like to build a business from the ground up. So I was a developer. I, was, I ran business development, ran finance, and was CEO. And so I've held most of the place, positions in a company you'd need to, to sort of understand what's, what it takes to be an entrepreneur before jumping over to the, uh, to the dark side and, uh, and looking at it from, uh, from the investment side. So let's take it back a little bit. To- yeah. Your your early days and and sure. as you were starting out, like what what you thought you were going to do in the world. Um, well, like most kids, I wanted to be a flying fighter man, a <laughs> firefighter. You know, a flying fire. That's a, talk That's about a, a tongue twister. <laughs> flying right. firefighter, but that cool. uh, that didn't pan out didn't, as planned. Uh, right. Um, you know, I was uh, a history and psychology major, which are two incredibly vocational right. degrees to have. Uh, and so, needlessly, needlessly, I had to go back to grad school to learn a trade <laughs> okay. um, and uh, figure out how to monetize my liberal arts background. Yeah. Um, but before that, I, I think I was impressed for, from a healthcare perspective, having grown up. My grandfather was a pediatrician on one side. My other grandfather was a dentist. Um, both of them made house calls. Both worked out of their homes. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was a pediatrician, bartered. Like, as you read about in books, like traded eggs and milk for wow. treatment. Wow. Um, you know, this was way back. He was, I think he went to med school in the 20s. Oh, wow. And so uh, so medicine was very different back then, obviously. Uh, and so I was brought up around this, you know, as, as, a, as a young child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then lived through some, you know, some sad events with relatives getting sick. My grandfather got Parkinson's. My mother got lung cancer as a non-smoker, and so I right. had a chance to sort of see both the good and the bad of the healthcare system, at least in our country, uh-huh. um, which sort of probably piqued my initial interest as sort of how how do we make things better. Okay. Um, so that seed germinated for a while, and you came out of liberal arts education, and your first job was? Well, I... As much as I would have liked to have been a physician, I'm allergic to pain, blood, and needles, and so <laughs> okay, okay. It, you know it's not it's not a very yeah. good vocation for me. Uh, but I actually uh, originally was planning to be a lawyer, and uh, I, true story, I went and I spent about three or four months in between undergrad and law school, working on a very large case in D.C. around the CEO of the United Way, who had embezzled a tremendous amount of right. money from the organization. And for about three or four months, the partner in the account came into my office and said, what are you doing here? And I said, I don't understand. What do you mean? I'm just working there. Like, she said, no, what are you doing Like in the figurative here? <laughs> and I said, I-, I don't know. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And she said, don't do that. She's like, I've been doing this for 20 years, and all I've ever made is paper. Wow. And I walked in the next day, and I quit. Oh, interesting. And I became a software developer. Uh-huh. And I figured, self-taught. So I did self-taught. that through self-taught. Um, and I was a mediocre developer at that, <laughs> for sure. How humble. Um, 
But, uh, you got but a, it, it you was, got a job out of it. I did get a job. It, this is a true story. My first interview was a phone interview, and I went to the bookstore and bought a book on programming. And I responded to the questions. Uh, back then, we're doing third and fourth generation data, database languages, yeah. so Fox Pro and Paradox right, right, and right. DBase. And I was taking a phone interview, leafing through the book, looking at answers. <laughs> I have never heard of these languages. Uh, I'm old enough. You're thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm afraid no, I just dated myself a little bit. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Java was a figment of the imagination of <laughs> people that did not exist. Um, and I did that for a few years and, and uh, ended up getting into the consulting world around technology. Okay. And was just sort of fascinated by how it all linked together. And these were the early days of networking and right. electronic communication. I mean, this was sort of like proprietary email systems and, right. you know, the, the early days. Back when people didn't trust uh, online communication enough to send legal documents back and forth. So I remember when I started this in the, in the 90s, we'd had messengers right. <laughs> because nobody trusted to send a document to anybody. So the bike messenger came up and got his, you know, his satchel over his back and carried him around the city. Yeah. And, wow. uh, you know, and now they send these things. Now to we the don't internet. trust the human. Now we don't trust the humans, humans. Right, 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 right. And suddenly the lawyers are okay sending whatever they want through the unsecure internet yeah. every yeah. day of the week. Um, okay. And then went back to grad school, and then was involved in a few different businesses, all on high growth and building technology and healthcare products. And started getting interested where the intersection of healthcare and technology met. And increasingly, we found that that was sort of you know, when you step away from med tech, devices, diagnostics, life sciences, there was, you know, in the 90s, healthcare IT. And it wasn't pretty. It was procurement. It was billing. Right. It was EHR. It was back office process and workflow. Um, but you could see how there was going to be an, an intersection. And an intersection that was going to change the way that medicine was practiced and the way that people experience it as a, as a patient and as a consumer. And you, you moved during that time. You moved from the guy reading the the book on on fourth generation languages to the, your, your first CEO role, uh, and you've had a number of those maybe uh, before moving on to the investment side. So I think it's great that VCs have been in the hot seat and yeah. maybe talk us through about some of the learnings in terms of you know running companies and. You know, what you took away from Well, it's that. interesting because I think if you ask different investors the same question, some will tell you how critical it is to have operating experience and other will tell you there are many investors out there who've never run a company have had tremendous success. And so um, clearly you can tell which, which, yeah, which, side, which, of which side of the fence I fall on. And that's the guidance and I get. And your, and your organization. And our organization. I mean, all my, I mean, between my partners and I, I think we've run a dozen businesses as wow. CEOs and and it's very much in sort of our DNA as operators to, yeah. to build and scale businesses. But I think the most important thing is it's, uh, it's very hard to be a good guide and mentor and advisor and partner to entrepreneurs if you haven't, you know, been there. And it's one thing to say, go make payroll. It's a whole other thing to say, I have to make payroll, right? <laughs> right. You know, or I have to fire somebody. Yeah. Who I really like, who is really capable, but who is, you know, unaffordable for whatever reason. For whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think it was really helpful to be in fun different functional areas. So understanding how to build up financial statements, putting together product design, 
talking to the customers and understanding what, in, what gathering the voice of the customer is and how do you translate that into a message and then how do you translate that message into engineered product. Right. And, and, uh, and this was before the days of product, true product management right. where that function exists today to sort of bridge those gaps. Back then, there were very, very discrete functions. You know, I, a, lot of, a lot of mistakes, you know, hiring and building the wrong products for the wrong partners, for the wrong markets at the wrong time, you know, and uh, uh, experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. <laughs> you know, I can't take credit for that. I heard that years ago, but I, I have come to appreciate it yeah. in spades. Right, right. Um, so I, I think there's just a lot of sort of nose to the grindstone, hard lessons that you learn. And quite frankly, I learned, I've always learned a lot more from what didn't go well than what did. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's interesting to talk to gener younger generations today who've never really lived through a down cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think they perceive that things just always sort of go up and to the right. Um, and I will say, having lived through multiple down cycles, I've always learned a lot more. It's been painful. Yeah. But you always t walk away with that. I was like, all right, note to self, don't do that again. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and that transition then from operator where, you know, you're making the decisions to, to you know, sometimes I've heard VC is like sitting in the driver's seat uh, with with a map trying to instruct the, the driver to, you know, and there's a wall coming at you and you're going at high speed and being able to mentor is a very different uh, and, and that, you know, taking away that control that you have as an operator and being an investor where you're in the passenger seat. How did you find that transition from the one who made the decisions to the one who you're trying to mentor and, uh, and help people with your experience? It's interesting. It's, it's easy to let go when you have confidence in, in your leader yeah. and you don't, you resist the urge to backseat drive when you don't, or you have a very young, a young leader and you have to mentor them and, and advise them. Uh, early on, you have to resist the temptation to be sort of a little heavy-handed. Yeah. Um, and there is a difference between sort of helping, leading people to water and helping them understand how to get there as opposed to just doing it for them. Uh, and, but I, I've come to appreciate that because I think it, an important thing in my life has always been mentorship. And uh, this is an apprentice-driven business, investing is. Right. Um, and... There's no school for it. Now there are classes in grad school and, and the like, but back in the day, there, there was no school. And honestly, even if you took these classes, it would teach you the mechanics of it, not really how do you, how do you create value as an investor, right. as a board member, you know, as a mentor, as an advisor. Uh, so early days, it, it was challenging. Um, and I think it takes a little while to get your sea legs and figure out how, how to interact. And the personalities are very different. Some people are very receptive to coaching and others you know, um, dangerously don't know what they don't know, which is always my <laughs> biggest fear. Right. You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm painfully aware of where my shortcomings are and, and I embrace them and I'm never afraid to ask for help. But, uh, one of the key components that we look for in entrepreneurs are is coachability mm -hmm. and a certain degree of humbleness, um, combined with competence and decisiveness. I mean, right. you, don't, you can't just have one or the other, but, um, so it, it's a, it was a transition for sure. Um, I think it was easier. It was easier because I could talk entrepreneur to entrepreneur. Yeah. Since I'd been there and walked in those shoes, yeah. I imagine it's more challenging if you'd come from consulting or investment banking or you know directly into principal investing in some sort. And you've never really. It's sort of like when we see entrepreneurs 
who are doctors and they talk to other doctors, like there's like a secret handshake. That's right. Yeah. Right, right? <laughs> She's a doctor. Right? There's like a secret yeah, handshake, yeah. right? I think it exists. Like, it's you know, true. I, yeah. and we know that sometimes we walk into a room and like we yeah. need to put the two doctors together. Yeah. Because they need to sort of have a mind meld. Yeah. And there's a credibility, there's a shared experience, there's right. a background. I don't know, maybe they were like, they both felt good because they were hazed in med school and in, in their <laughs> residency and in their internship. They survived, right? They survived, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. like <laughs> that sheer sense of suffering. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, yeah. I should have explained at the start that, that we'd like to take the first part to kind of get to know Robert a little bit and kind of your background and kind of what, what got you here. And then the second part to really dive into, you know, what your view is today and where do you think we are mm-hmm. in the industry. So, so we're going to switch over to the second part. And um, we were chatting beforehand, you know, the kind of thesis of your firm is that the consumer will drive change in the industry, correct? True. Where did that come from? And what's the kind of the background to that? Well, one of my partners had been a long-term proponent of the consumer's role in the health ecosystem. And he had run the health innovation practice for Oliver Wyman and had spent the better part of the last 20 years working with the C-suite of every payer, provider, IDN, self-funded employer in the country all around strategy. Um, And I would argue that for some of his years, he was well ahead of his time, but he had this thesis that he had developed over a lot of years around how the consumer is going to become the epicenter of this market, just like it is in every other market. And it doesn't take a lot of uh, leaps of faith to understand how the auto industry, the consumer packaged good industry, avia airlines and avia like every one of these industries is keenly interested in all of us as consumers. And everything they do from the way they design their product or service to the way they market to us is all designed around us and what our experiences is. Healthcare is anomalous. There's nothing about healthcare that is geared <laughs> towards us as the user. Right. We are considered historically something that stuff is done too, right? right? Yeah. You know, we're, re- we're on the recipient end of that. It's like, you know, but it doesn't feel empowered. It doesn't feel like you have any control over it. Um, and once you're pulled into it for whatever reason, whether it be, you know, simple primary care or, or an episodic event or a chronic disease, you're a part of the machine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really was born out of my partner, Tom Main, and his his sort of thought leadership years ago. And then over the last sort of three or four years, it really evolved. And all right, well, that's great to talk about, but how do you put it into action, mm-hmm. right? Because today, at least in our market, we still don't see consumers willing to pay yeah. for right. healthcare right. any more than they're paying for their out-of-pocket maximum, their, out- their co-insurance, their healthcare premiums, what have you. But if you go to an, empl- an employee or a consumer and say, now you have to pay for this, it's not a natural behavior. And so there is a behavioral element that will need to change over time. But I think you're seeing in the market already indications that those that are going to survive long term are starting to think much more about the end user and what their experience is like and how can that be a competitive differentiator. And I think that's only going to get more prevalent. Yeah, I think we we want to agree. I mean, I think we, we see, as you say, you see it in other industries. It is very regulated, and you can probably think of it on a, on a spectrum that if you're a very sick person, in some ways you're kind of at the behest of the, of the system, right? Whereas, you know, if you're a wealthy 
person who wants to stay healthy, then it's a different perspective, right? You have a lot more control. Um, how how far how far down that spectrum do you think we can go? Because you know, I agree with you that it is going to be driven by the change is going to be driven by the consumer. But how far down that spectrum from kind of fitness through to acute do you think we can go with this thesis? I think it's early days, admittedly, and I, you're right. Healthcare is unique. It's regulated. It's not easily disintermediated. We right. have clinicians. We have hospitals, we have insurers, whether they be government sponsored or private, you know, and these various components aren't going away anytime soon. And in fact, all of those constituents have invested a tremendous amount of time and money preserving the status quo and making sure they don't go away. Yeah. But I I do think that we're going to see it uh, penetrate pretty deeply and affect how people just think about both episodic and chronic disease. Simple... Uh, example might be a joint replacement where if you had it done 15 years ago, uh, it was inpatient, then you were sent to a SNF, a skilled nursing facility for 10 days, and then you went home, and now it's done outpatient for those who are healthy enough to have it done outpatient. You know, another example might be a cancer diagnosis. Well, sure, you still need the clinicians and you're still at the mercy of the system to a certain degree, but there are all kinds of new tools that help people with not just the clinical, but the non-clinical, right? Right. So the clinical is, how do I identify a clinical trial? You know, who's the best in the country at treating these types of of cancers because they're very unique? Um, The non-clinical be symptom management, hair loss, uh, nutrition, um, loneliness and isolation. And so leveraging technology and services together to improve what that experience is like, is going to be pretty impactful. And there's already pretty good anecdotal data about sort of the impl- the implication of those types of non-clinical tools on clinical outcomes. Yeah. You know, great, great, great examples, yeah. Yeah, no, and I'm not even sure that it's only a cost issue, right? It's also a transparency issue. Do I feel like this is personalized for me, for my no good health? The moment I start to believe in those things, I don't doubt that a lot of patients who are able will become payers for them for their own health and well-being. And I think you can see some of those trends, especially in the prevention space and the wellness space, right? Well, it's certainly easier to, to show how this personalized care allows both the individual and the clinician to get ahead of chronic disease, for example, and to do earlier intervention before these things become expensive and complex and... Uh, incur comorbidities, you know. So when you look at a patient with diabetes, huge prevalence of heart disease, hypertension, behavioral health, obesity, you know, all kinds of things. It's not simple. Right. And so if you can get in front of that, that has a massive impact. I think the piece that, that I'm not convinced yet is that the way to solve the cost problem is through the consumer. But I think there is a need for for cost transparency and information sharing and better data for us to make better choices. But I think if the system as a whole is relying on that and the better choices from the consumer to solve the cost problem, we'll never get there. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Even if we know to make a better choice that an MRI that's $500 is the same as one that's $2,000 and that will save some money. Yeah. But that's that's a, a drop in the bucket compared to the larger systemic problems around cost. And what have you seen in your experience more recently with Livongo in terms of consumer adoption or outcomes 
um, really encouraging stuff. And uh, Livongo is a great example. Uh, I think we're up to seven or 800 customers now, including about a half a dozen payers and a number of distribution partners in the PBM space. And so, look, diabetes is a $250 billion problem in the U.S. alone, let alone all the comorbidities. And what we're finding is if you create personalized, transparent, easy-to-use technologies and give them to the consumer with no out-of-pocket cost for the consumer, Mm -hmm. you can move the needle. You can get people to engage when they need to engage and you can drive improved outcomes. Mm. And part of our thesis around sort of the consumer part of consumer health is the goal is to make this more transparent to the user, not more intrusive, right? The last thing we want to do if we know we have high blood pressure or diabetes or congestive heart failure is have someone reminding us three times a day that you have yeah. a chronic disease, right? right? And right. poking you, like, <laughs> how does somebody poking me Man. 10 times a day telling me to check my BP <laughs> right. make me feel good about these technology right. tools? As opposed to the, in the Livongo example, and now we're in multiple disease states, but when we started, it was really just around patient people with diabetes, was, well, the intervention only came at the point that there was a, st- a data trend that showed that you were headed for a bad place. Right. And then there was an outreach. And that outreach was well-timed, was personalized, email, phone, text, and with some concrete, simple things that you could do. So instead of saying, change your lifestyle and your diet and start exercising, it was like, Drink a glass of orange, just walk around the block and retest your blood sugar in 30 minutes. And let's see what it looks like. And so what we found was that made people feel that they had control. Mm -hmm. And then they could see the impact. And if they did that enough and it was not intrusive, we could move the needle. And then what we found is these people started showing that they had other problems. And so we layered in uh, high blood pressure and then we're layering in behavioral health recently. And so... All the comorbidities now come into play, but you've already created the engagement model in a single framework that they can use. And so now there's a whole suite of tools that one person who has all these different types of ailments can use to help better self-manage. So we are seeing both better outcomes and lower cost in that example. Um, And it's early days. Right. I mean, that, that's the, that's their... But getting in front, like this idea of getting in front of it and stopping all the cost and all the pain, who do you think is going to capture that value? Uh, we were talking to some pharma folks last night and they were saying, well, what happens when you move up the chain, you know, and like, who do you think is going to capture the, that pool of, of value that's going to be created if we catch these things earlier? It's a good question because they're all they're all fighting for that. Um, and so the question is, do those dollars get just get redistributed in a different manner? Right. Right. Although if you theoretically push it into primary care and ambulatory care and out of acute care settings and you get in front of complex disease, theoretically you should be able to remove costs from the system. Right. And it, won't, it shouldn't accrue to anybody. Now, we both know as being sort of skeptical in the industry that there will be lots of people trying to fight for that redistribution of dollars. But we believe that that we should be able to take 30% of the costs out of the industry over time. You know, that's an ambitious goal. That's great. It's an ambitious goal, but I I do think that we've got to start somewhere Mm. and pushing people. And we need to do it, right? I mean, we have no choice. Yeah, right. We have no choice. Do you think it's going to be the incumbents or do you think, I mean, you're backing early stage companies and mid-stage companies. Is is it going to come through through those companies or going to come through Amazon or like, you know, what's really going to shake it up? It'll be a combination. There's no, I hate to cop out on that, but it'll be, it'll be, it'll be a combination. Well, it's interesting uh, because 
during our, our event in Munich last yeah. month, and we were talking about this. And I, as if you remember, I was sort of pounding my fist on the table saying, Corpus, do you understand if you do a better job working with early stage companies, that's a competitive differentiator for you. Right. And the benefits will accrue to you. You will have better product design, better voice of the customer. Right. You'll keep yourself from becoming irrelevant. And everybody nods their head and says yes. And then they say, well, I don't know how to do that in the organization. Right. It's very challenging. <clears throat> right. Um, so, But I do think those that figure out how to do that and institutionalize that innovation, those practices, will will have long-term success. We are definitely seeing new categories on the digital health side of big companies that are – uh, that are standalone, right. going alone. My guess is they'll be acquired and be part of the bigger companies over time. But right. we're absolutely seeing people moving the needle on primary care, on chronic disease, on behavioral health. And I think that will continue. You know, I, as I say, I, I, doctors aren't going anywhere today. Insurance companies aren't going anywhere today and hospitals aren't. But I think the distribution will change. Where care is accessed will change. Hmm. Um, yeah. And... Uh, if I were a big owner of acute care beds right now, I wouldn't be feeling really great. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we were in Munich. So one of the things we did there, and you kindly helped us, was create the, well, initially we said 10 commandments, but it ended up with 12. So we're obviously not very good good editors, but uh, the 12 commandments for corporations and startups working with each other. So what what's your, what's your advice to corporations about, you know, how should they engage thoughtfully and usefully with, with entrepreneurs. Yeah, it, it will be interesting when those get released and people sort of look at them and whether they can take them to heart and act on them. Right. Um, so, I, you know, TBD. Yeah. You know, personally, my experience has been that I think corporates need to reinvent their process from the top down and how they want to work with young and innovative companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think organization that's challenging, but if they want to be successful, um I think that's necessary. I think I gave the example in Munich of one of our companies working on a, an MSA with one of the large national payers here, and the right. MSA was 476 pages. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> right. Yeah. So think about what it would cost you in legal fees just to have your counsel just review that it, right. and then negotiate that. Right. And does that, that doesn't feel nimble, yeah, right? And so right. if I have a choice and I can go to that payer as a partner or this one over here that has a 10-page MSA tailored to work with startups – which way am I going to go? Right. Um, so I think the process needs to be tailored and streamlined, needs to be cost effective. You know, I think we talked a lot about pilots. And I know my, my feeling is I tell our companies don't do pilots right. unless the pilot's tied to a commercial rollout based on the achievement of specific yeah. milestones. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll be stuck in pilotitis. That's what I say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, well, so I was on a panel yesterday in, uh, in, Laguna, in Laguna Niguel oh. around senior care. And uh, one of my fellow panelists was talking about working with a, a provider who did a pilot, had great results, and the vendor said, "So when are we rolling it out?" And the friend's like, "I don't know if we're gonna, I don't know if we're gonna do this." And you're like, well, "What, <laughs> what was, was the, the point? point? What, was that? Yeah, yeah. what was the point?" Yeah. And but it was a whole discussion around sort of, you know, corporates need to have commitment, and they need to look at that investment as a commercially viable solution. And if they have no intention going in of rolling out commercially, then don't, don't bother. Do, don't bother. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, you know, Kaiser's a pretty good example of someone who takes that to heart. Last I talked to him, I think they had 417 pilots going on. But last year, they did 200 implementations of different new technologies. Wow. 
It's a pretty high conversion rate. Right. Right. And so, you know, maybe it's easier when you control the entire supply chain as an IDM. Of course. Mm -hmm. Rather than just the rather than just a piece of the pie. But but I think it's a good it's a good model for uh, an example of how people can actually put things in practice. Um, so I think people just need to rethink, you know, how they how they work with with startups and view them as partners and as equals and not as, you know, vendors that they can put their heavy handed thumb on. They can do stuff too. Yeah. yeah. yeah right, and it's right. funny as an outsider to me, this seems like duh. You know, <laughs> what, shouldn't this be right. normal? But yeah. I guess uh, we we have a lot yeah, to learn as it's, an industry. Yeah, it's it's not institutionalized in the culture. You know, I I frequently talk about the difference between being being innovative and doing innovation. Right. Like you don't do innovation, you are innovative. Right. Yeah. Right. And so when you look at organizations who've had good success with that, it's top down, integrated into the culture. Yeah. They reward risk taking. They reward failure yeah. as long as it's not repeated in the same way. Yeah. Um, and they and they build it throughout the organization, as opposed to we're going to stand up an innovation fund, we're going to put it in a corner in a skunk works in an extra building that we have, <laughs> yeah. and let them go bean off. Bags and, and you know, yeah. Yeah. what? Some bean bags, nice right? Bean right. Bags. right. <laughs> Some bean bags, and you know, you know, and a foosball table. <laughs> right. um, yeah. And so I think those are the places where they challenge because there's no buy-in at the top level and even organizationally. Yeah, you know, and everybody has little fiefdoms. You know, and and is very reticent to sort of let you under the tent and whichever your five from your you're managing, unless the boss says this is the way it's going to be. One of our part, one of our LPs and strategic investors is Alina Health in Minneapolis, and and Penny Wheeler, who runs that organization, is a very innovative person, and it's always really uplifting to spend time with their team mm-hmm. because you sit around with their whole executive team and go up there a few times a year and. They're thirsty for knowledge and excited to learn and have concrete examples of how they implement. But it comes from Penny, and Penny is like a remarkable leader. And she's hired and built a team around her to support that vision. And that's very different than I can say, like getting in front of an old line, you know, a a stodgy blue plan, for example, that, you know, runs very much in sort of an old school mentality. Good, good. We're coming towards the end now. Yeah. I think we're, we just wanted to um, ask you one final question, Robert. It's been a great, <laughs> we could do two or three episodes of this stuff, but uh, um, we just want to kind of wrap it up and, and say, well, if you weren't in venture capital, what would you be doing? Uh, I'd be back on the entrepreneurial side. Okay. So the, the, inter- grass is always, the grass is always greener, <laughs> right? right, right. When, when things are going really well with a portfolio company, it always looks like more fun to be on the company side. <laughs> oh, okay. It always does. Okay. But I think um, great. more so than ever, it's just really, you know, I started off in venture purely focused on technology. And I woke up one day and said, well, the world doesn't need any more widgets, <laughs> right. right? Although there have been some very successful um, widgets that have made yeah. people a lot of money. Right. But the idea of being able to do well by doing good is is compelling for all of us. And we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't want to have an impact. So the idea of going back and picking any of the 30 different things we've looked at, different disease states we've looked at and saying, here's how we can leverage tools, technology, and information to make a difference in people's lives, that's pretty compelling. That's what gets us up in the morning. And so if I didn't get to do it from an investment perspective, I'd do it as a company. That's great. Uh, Robert, thanks for coming in. It's been a great half hour. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you. So that was so interesting. And I think you've known Robert for a while. And 
I learned so much about him just in this half an hour right. of uh, chatting with him. Right. What do you think we take away from this conversation? Very positive. You know, somebody who's a realist, who understands the challenges, but who fundamentally believes that, uh, you know, consumerism is going to change healthcare like it has other industries. I think that's a pretty powerful message. And it's not just something that's been thrown out there. I think uh, Robert and the, and the whole firm have really thought through, like, what that means and who it's going to impact and when it's going to happen and what areas. And, you know, I think they're they're positive. I think they're realistic about it. And so I think that's a really, a really some really great insights there. Great. Nice note to end on. Yes, indeed. Thanks, folks. Bye. And that's a wrap on episode two of the Health Excel podcast. On episode three, we'll be speaking with Megan Coder, the exec director and co-founder of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. See you later.